So we are on the second to last chapter in Christ of the Prophets by O. Palmer Robertson. This chapter is called The Prophets and the Peoples. So you've examined, uh, probably at a seminary level, classroom, uh, each of these books as he's, he's walked through the prophets uh, in each of these chapters. Um, and today he is going to examine a common theme amongst these prophets and what they have taught. And the idea here has to do with the fact that God's promise, as taught through these promise, prophets, is that the peoples of the world are going to share, all the nations are going to share in the same restoration and redemption that Israel's promised, okay? So he wants to show how the prophets, even in Old Testament times, were showing that God's promises for Israel were also for the nations and for those outside of Israel. Um, that's a, that may be a difficult concept for some of us. Some of us may have heard that before and been familiar with it. Some of us may not. I remember uh, in Bible college, probably 10 years ago now, sitting in a missions class and for the first time hearing that Israel was supposed to be missionaries, that the land of Israel was not just for national Israel, but God was preparing for the whole world to be saved through his promises to Israel. Um, and how we see over and over uh, in the Old Testament that Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations and that they were supposed to take the foreigner. And if they would believe and, and, and trust in the God of the promise, that they too could be in fellowship with him and could share in all those promises. And that's an incredible idea to see in the Old Testament that God has always been working for a greater good for all nations, um, calling them to himself. And that's not something that's always clearly taught. And I was, uh, I was floored by that, to see that, that the Old Testament taught the salvation of Gentiles, just as we see in the New Covenant. Um, it's there. So uh, Palmer Robertson wants to point out how do we see that in the prophets. And he's going to show that to us in uh, several different ways. He's going to talk about Gentile inclusion, from the perspective of prophets anticipating exile. He's going to show us the Gentile inclusion from the perspective of those prophets who were experiencing exile and also for those who were coming back after exile. And so those three different perspectives, the prophets that were before the exile was coming, what their perspective on the Gentile inclusion was, those who were actually in exile, what their perspective was on this Gentile conclusion, and then lastly, those who have come out of exile. So first, those prophets anticipating exile. Uh, we look at Hosea, the book of Hosea, and you see there in your outline that, that he proclaims Israel will become lo-ami, or not my people. But he also promises that those same will become, again, ami, my people. And so these uh, Israelites who are called his people will be called not his people because of their disobedience. But then God promises that, again, you may be called my people. I will restore you. And so we've talked about this, this idea of exile and restoration over and over. And we see that in these books, in these prophets, exile and restoration that is going to happen, that God promises. Amos does the same thing. He predicts that there is going to be a Gentile nation that's going to be called by God's name one day, Edom. Edom was going to be converted. Jonah, the classic story that we all remember, 
is called to preach to Nineveh and call them to repentance. And God uh, promises to spare them if they repent. Much to Jonah's chagrin, they actually repent. And Jonah was uh, unhappy with this. But God used Jonah to preach to Nineveh and to show that a foreign country, a Gentile nation, could repent and come to know the Lord and his mercy. Isaiah has probably got the greatest description of this Gentile inclusion. Isaiah has so many references to how the nations will be called to the Lord and how if they would repent, they could be part of the promise to Israel. So Isaiah predicts that the Messianic king will be a light to the nations, that it will not just be to one nation, to Israel, but he will be a light to many nations, and that he will stand as a banner for the peoples, for all the peoples, that he will stand for them as their banner. We see that in Isaiah 9, 11, and 12. In Isaiah 49, Isaiah says that not only will the servant of the Lord restore Israel, he will be a light to the nations, or Gentiles, so that salvation extends to the ends of the earth. So you remember Isaiah talks about the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant, and he is the one who will restore Israel and be a light to not just Israel, but to the nations, to Gentiles. I wonder how, how they swallowed that in their day. How did, what did Isaiah think about that? That God was saying that these other nations are going to be uh, affected by the light of this servant that we're hoping for that he is going to save them, and so that that salvation will extend not just for this little Israel, but to the ends of the earth. God's plan is much, much bigger than we often would think. Isaiah promises that Egypt and Assyria, now remember Egypt and Assyria, how nice were they to God's people? (laughs) Egypt and Assyria were some of those countries and those nations that caused the most suffering for God's people. And yet, Isaiah says that Egypt and Assyria will return to the Lord and worship. They're going to return, and not just return, but actually worship alongside Israel. Can you imagine that? The people that most afflicted Israel are going to worship with them, is what Isaiah says. That must have been hard to swallow. If I was an Israelite, that would have been hard to swallow. These Uh, nations that had ruined our family, ruined our country, ruined our worship, one day we're going to worship with them? That's hard to swallow, at least for me. Egypt and Assyria will return to the Lord and worship alongside Israel. And then we move on to Jeremiah, a prophet anticipating exile. And Jeremiah pronounces woe on Moab for 46 verses. Condemnation, condemnation, condemnation for Moab. Judgment for your sin. But then all of a sudden, it says that the Lord will restore the fortunes of Moab. The Lord will restore those fortunes of Moab. Pronounces woe for 46 verses, condemnation, but the Lord will restore the fortunes of Moab in the days to come. That's a promise in Jeremiah. And then below that, we see Jeremiah regularly uses the same expression to describe the restoration of Israel. So that, that, that language of restoring the fortunes of Moab, that same kind of language is used by Jeremiah regularly to talk about the nation of Israel itself. They will be restored when God's promising, I will restore you one day. He's using the same language when he talks about Moab as well. And so it seems to be that there is this restoration that is equal to and not different than a salvation that is offered to his own people, Israel, 
It's also offered to those nations if they would repent and believe. Those nations that had caused Israel so much trouble. So whatever blessing of restoration belongs to Israel, Robertson tells us, is offered equally to all the nations of the world. Robertson hones in on that in this chapter over and over and over. That whatever blessing of restoration is promised to Israel is offered equally to all the nations of the world if they would repent and believe. It says in Jeremiah, if you remember, uh, we've, we talked about Jeremiah a little bit, and there's some common language, this idea of uprooting and replanting. He would talk about the nations, that he would uproot them and he would replant them. And he, he, he uses that language here in Jeremiah 12. He says, After I uproot them, I will again have compassion and will bring each of them back to his own inheritance and his own country. And if they learn well the ways of my people and swear by my name, then they will be established among my people. So here in Jeremiah 12, he's talking about their wicked neighbors, the nations around them that were wicked. And he says, after I, I uproot them, I will uproot them, but I will again have compassion and bring each of them back to his own inheritance and his own country. I think that's interesting to note, back to their own country, back to their own country. Not all in, in one little place, but back to their own country. And they will learn well the ways of my people. Then they will be established among my people. So established among them, not apart from them, not separate from them, but among them. These promises are powerful and hard to comprehend. Uh, I, I imagine that it was hard for them to understand these things and the prophets themselves, to understand just what is God getting at. What is he pointing towards in the future? If you turn your uh, page over, uh, the top of your second page, F, Zephaniah predicts that the nations on every shore will worship the Lord in their own land, in their own land. He had pronounced judgment on Moab and Ammon. Zephaniah had pronounced that judgment, but then he predicts that the nations on every shore will worship the Lord in their own land. So not just in Israel, but it seems like the promise here is for many lands across the globe that they will also worship the Lord. And so again, we see here this perspective of the prophets before exile, what their, what their view of the Gentile inclusion was like, their, the, the view they had about what was going to happen to these nations, that they were going to also worship. And so Robertson tells us, you see G there, uh, that the most sinful and brutal nations to God's people are offered the same hope and promises of God's people. These nations that hated them, and were cruel to them and killed them, they also are offered the same hope and promise that God's people are offered. So a discussion question for us, you see there, what can we learn about God and ourselves from this? If this is the God that we worship, Old Testament and New Testament, and this is how he treats nations and offers redemption and his promises, what can we learn about God and ourselves from this? What should we learn? Yeah.
Yeah, definitely. Just how powerful is God's ability to redeem much more than we can imagine, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to swallow sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's encouraging, right? Yeah. To, for us. Yeah. The worst of the worst. God can redeem and does. Uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, especially, you know, looking at how God works through covenants in the study we've been doing, that that binds together Old and New Testament uh, so closely. God's working with his people has is, is always been the same. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Yeah, and often the death of the wicked, yeah, or yeah, I can't, yeah, um, and it's often more so than we can swallow, I think, uh, I, you know, you, you study this and the way that the Lord worked uh, with his people and the promises offered to these nations, and you think, you know, maybe I'm not that different from Jonah, right? You know, Jonah seeing the wickedness of this nation and going to them, I'm sure, you know, most of us would have felt exactly the same as Jonah, right? That we wouldn't have been any more righteous. Yeah.
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, knowing this, uh, how does this affect our understanding of our current world? How does this affect, if that's the way that God has, has worked in his covenant and his promises, how does that affect, and I think we've hit on this definitely already some, but the view of our current world. Sorry? God's not done yet. He's still calling people to himself, even from nations that are... Yeah. This is all, this is all Jeff. So if I say anything wrong, it's his fault. <laughs> yeah, so the worst of the worst. And, you know, this, I mean, the practicality of this, I think it, sh- it should encourage us for loved ones, those close to us that we feel like are so far gone. It's impossible Well, it's not impossible, and we should never stop praying for them and hoping for them, right? Because God is a God of miracles who saves to the uttermost, and it's just as much a miracle that any of us here today are saved, right? Um, Somebody over here had a thought. I missed. Okay, so now you're putting words in my mouth. (laughs) Okay, well, we'll we'll move on. So... uh, Roman numeral number two, the Gentile inclusion now from the perspective of prophets experiencing exile. Those who are actually in the exile. What do those prophets have to say about the inclusion of Gentiles? Well, Ezekiel prophesies the exile and restoration of Egypt similar to that of Israel. Exile and restoration, that theme over and over and over with the prophets. Exile and restoration. God has been promising that to his people, but it's also the true for Egypt. The nation that has been wicked in the eyes of the Lord, they are offered and promised a restoration similar to that of Israel. Uh, You see below there that the land promises to Israel also include foreigners. It says, for the aliens who have settled among you and who have children in Ezekiel. These promises are also for the alien who is among you. And you are to consider them as native-born Israelites. Consider them as if they had actually been born an Israelite. Along with you, they are to be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. Wow, that's powerful. So not only were they supposed to, they weren't just supposed to be like, okay, we have a little area for those who are like, they're part of us now, but they're really not part of us. You know, they're, you know, we're true Israelites, Jews, and they have a little section over here that they can partake of some of our blessing, but not all of it. No, he says that they are to be considered native-born, and they are supposed to have an allotment of the inheritance of the tribes of Israel, full partakers with them in all the promises of God, not as if they were partly uh, part of the promises or half part of the promises, but full, completely full. So Daniel, uh, another prophet during exile, predicts days when governmental powers will wage war against the saints of God and defeat them. But in the end, God will hand them over to the saints, and all nations and rulers will worship God. It's a classic text from Daniel 7, uh, looking forward to the future um, and the, the war that will be waged and judgment that will happen. But yet, he's predicting that all nations and rulers will 
worship God, that at some point there will be a restoration from every part of the world because God is going to receive all the glory. So those are two of the prophets that were experiencing exile, and though they were in foreign lands and they were experiencing all the difficulty and suffering that they were, and yet they were uh, speaking forth this promise of the Lord that even the aliens among you, even those who seem to be not a part of the promises, will one day also be a part. And then we get to the prophets who were restored after exile, like Zechariah and Malachi. What did they think about Gentile inclusion, or what did the Lord speak through them about Gentile inclusion? Well, Zechariah declares that Zion must shout and rejoice, for the Lord is coming, and many nations will be joined to the Lord and become God's people. Many nations, not just Israel. Those who are far away will come and help build the temple of the Lord. Then Malachi, who wraps up the Old Testament, he declares that the name of the Lord will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. And in every place in the world, pure offerings will be brought in his name. In every place in the world, not just Israel, right? In every place in the world. Isn't that so much better? Isn't that so much better than just one little place on the map worshiping God? But every inch of this creation, every inch of the world at one point in the future will offer true worship to the Lord. In every place, pure offerings will be brought in his name. That God is great among the nations. So those restored after exile have, have the same theme, and it's what Robertson's pointing out over and over and over, is that there is this theme of Gentile inclusion in the promise, even in the Old Testament. So what does it look like in the New Testament? Uh, Gentile inclusion in the New Testament, Romans or uh, Roman numeral 4. So we know that according to these prophets, it's clearly not a mystery that the Gentiles would be redeemed along with Israel. For they were, as we've seen, talking about the promises being given to other nations. It's not a mystery. So what is Paul talking about in Ephesians 3? What is he talking about the mystery that is happening with Gentile inclusion in Ephesians 3? Well, Gentile believers are heirs together with Israel, members of one body, and participants together in the promises of God. So if you have your Bible, let's look at that really quick. Go to Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3, verse 6. Paul says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So what is this mystery that Paul's talking about? Well, Robertson points out that it is the fact that somehow those outside Israel become partakers with Israel of the same promises the same promise, they become fellow heirs, members of the same body, um, and partakers of the promise. Where? How? In Christ Jesus, right? So Christ was the crowning uh, achievement, the crowning victory 
that allowed the promises of God to take effect and to start moving forward and to be a, a way that even we Gentiles may partake of those same promises. So he says, uh, Robertson says, every promise made to Israel now belongs equally to every Gentile believer grafted into Christ. So what he's saying is that if you are in Christ by faith, you are saved the same way that every person in the Old Testament was, right? That in Israel, Abraham, how is he, how is he saved? It was by faith, right? How were any, any people in the Old Covenant saved? It was by faith. So Gentiles also, we are saved by faith. And so if we are saved by faith and grafted into Christ, all the promises of Israel become ours as well. All are united in the same body, that one body of Christ. How incredible is this mystery? How incredible is this mystery? So our discussion question then, if this is the case, if Gentile inclusion has been preached through the prophets to us, and then Paul makes it clear that this is coming to light in the face of Jesus Christ, that we might all be partakers in the same promises, how does this expansion of God's promises to the Gentiles affect our view of Israel today? And now this could go a lot of directions, I know. I'm opening a can of worms. We can talk a little bit about it. We got a little bit of time. So let's see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an excellent uh, summary. So, and what what happens here is that we do split between the two two main views. Probably would be dispensational or the covenant uh, view. Exactly. 
Yeah. Yeah. We, we come back to the age-old question, right, of what makes a Jew a Jew? What makes a Jew a Jew? Is it national? Is it religious? What makes a Jew a Jew? We talked about this before. It, you know, it seems simpler than a lot of times we want to make it in Romans, the end of Romans 2. Paul says what makes a Jew a Jew is to have a circumcised heart, not to be circumcised physically, if you're physically circumcised but your heart's not circumcised you're not a true Jew but if your heart is circumcised by faith then you are a true Jew and so what Paul teaches is that we today if we are in Christ by faith we're true Jews right and all those in the Old Testament who are circumcised in heart were true Jews um, so that is what makes a Jew a Jew <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, definitely. That's a good practical application. Yeah. Very important. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Romans 11 is always the, the passage that we go to, and I feel like a lot of times it's not interpreted with the entire book in thought. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, we, we would agree, I think, that, you know, if you hold the Old Testament, New Testament together, it's, it's very hard to see an argument that there would be, that God would make separate promises of this little land and just that that would just stand alone by itself and that wouldn't include the nations like the, it seems like the rest of Scripture talks about. That, you know, it's almost like we microscopic everything down. It's like, well, wait a minute. God's actually promising something so much better. Like, he doesn't want just this one little tiny piece of land. He's, he's, his intention is the world, to give the entire world to his people. Um, I think Romans, Romans 4 is interesting. Romans 4.13, it says, The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And so Paul sees the promises to Abraham as being for the whole world, not just his tiny plot of land in the Middle East, but the entire world. God's promises are pushing the bounds of what we could even imagine and expect. And we see that in all the promises through the Old Testament as well, that it's always pushing the bounds. Yeah, that's a great question. They were supposed to. So Israel's call as a nation was to be a light to the nations, right? Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations and proselytize. And there was a way for them to do that. And that a foreigner could come and become a part of the nation of Israel and worship God. And that did happen some, but that's part of the failure of Israel to be what God called them to be, right? And why, why Christ was so necessary is because they did not, they could not fulfill that requirement to be a light to the world. Yeah, yeah. I'll move us along. I'm sorry. We, for the sake of time, we, we still got our last page to get through. So I'm going to run us through it so we uh, don't take up too much time. Uh, your last page, the predictions of the prophets concerning the consummate state. This is looking forward to the final judgment, right? And what, what is going to happen and so we see the prophets regularly were making predictions about this judgment to come in the future. There is a future judgment. Uh, we know this. 
Uh, and the, often, uh, these prophetic anticipations have eschatological, terminal, and cataclysmic aspects. Uh, we're familiar with that. It's that the, all the, the revelation, you know, everything we see in revelation, that kind of um, eschatological, cataclysmic uh, writing. Uh, some common features, the heavenly bodies, sun, moon, and stars, are often talked about being uh, darkened or having something go on. Uh, the earth shakes and undergoes, undergoes cataclysmic transformations. There's this, this idea of like the, the nature, sun, moon, and stars, the earth are shaken. Um, something's going on. And so these predictions indicate supernatural events, he says, that can only be accomplished by divine intervention. So something's, something's happening, something's coming, but we don't, we don't clearly understand what that is. And the prophetic anticipation is looking forward to this and talking about it in these terms that don't make sense to us often, and they didn't completely understand what they were looking forward to. But it's always grounded in history and the framework of God's redemptive plan, is what he points out. But though it wasn't, you know, fully revealed, it's grounded in the rooted history and framework of God's redemptive activity. There's always a vision of Israel as a land and a people. So though all these crazy visions happen and these anticipated events, the goal is always that God's going to have a people, he's going to have a land, and they're going to live with him forever in perfection, right? There's going to be a resurrection, that these promises, that's the goal that we're getting toward, is God's people in a land worshiping with him forever. Um, the expectation of these prophets of the future, uh, they often burst the bonds of previously expected promises. So we've talked about that how often these promises go further than we, we can even kind of imagine. So Ezekiel, when he talks about the temple, it doesn't fit on Mount Zion, but it spills across the Kidron and Terapian Valley. Forgive me if I pronounce that wrong um, in Ezekiel 42. And then Zechariah depicts Jerusalem as having no walls because of the number of inhabitants, that Jerusalem is so, so large, has so many inhabitants that it, it cannot have walls. And so they're these promises, expected promises in the future, are breaking past, you know, everything we can imagine. It's much greater, much larger uh, than we would think. And so the prophets were not able to completely grasp the scope of their own messages, but the general message is understood, right? That the details are sealed, but the general message is there, that God is redeeming for himself a people in a land to dwell with them forever and to live in perfection um, that's the goal of God, to dwell with his people forever. And lastly, as we wrap up in First Peter, I love this verse, talking about these prophets, and as they looked into these things, it says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ in the subsequent glories. So the prophets, they were prophesying about things and wondering what has the spirit of Christ worked in them what is this indicating what will this actually look like as they prophesied of the things concerning the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glory they themselves were not fully comprehending and seeing it as we get to see now um, but yet they they trusted by faith and knew that God was going to do something to save his people and it's going to be much better than they could imagine um, we, uh, we have to close. Any just quick last thoughts, questions before we close? Right. Yeah. Yeah.
Yeah, <laughs> the whole world is the Lord's, right? Okay, well, let's go ahead and pray, and we will close. Father, we thank you so much for your promises. We thank you that in Christ that they have all uh, been yes in him and that we might be partakers of your promises um, given to your Old Testament saints, that we might with them uh, look forward to the day when you come and make all things new and that we might dwell with you in perfection forever. We pray that you would purify our hearts and our minds with this truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.